listener production. Okay, are you recording? G'day and welcome to episode 7 of the Howie Games. And this week we're coming to you from Bathurst, home of Australia's greatest motor race, the Bathurst 1000. In that spirit, a two-for-one deal this week with a man who has won the great race six times, Mr Larry Perkins, and a bloke that desperately, and I mean desperately, wants to win it for the very first time, Larry's son, Jack. This episode deals with both their experiences at Bathurst. It also looks at Larry's little-known foray into Formula One alongside Bernie Eccleston, of all people, and Jack's battles with illness and trying to follow in a famous father's footsteps. Hey, gang, Pickle here. And Big Penguin, too. Sorry we weren't on last week. It was time to make a stand. Yep, we went on an industrial strike, didn't we, Pickle? Yes, Pengy, an industrial strike because Daddy's not paying us enough. Pickle, he's not paying us at all. And I've had a gutful. Unfortunately, the dispute hasn't been resolved at this current juncture. So, all we're prepared to say is... Please subscribe to the Howie Games and rate us on iTunes. We actually don't care if you do or not, because we ain't getting a cut. Yep, Pickle, we ain't getting a cut yet. Thank you, you two. So I first met Jackie Perkins 10 years ago at Bathurst when he was getting set for his very first race start. We shot a story going fishing together of all things and Jack's very first cast, boing, got stuck up a tree. Yeah, lucky the kid can drive. Larry, well, Larry was actually the inspiration for the Howie Games. The three of us were having a pot and palmer in a tiny little pub called the Murrayville Hotel on the Victorian South Australian border and LP was in fine form, rolling out all sorts of stories about his early days of racing. And I was thinking to myself, these stories are way, way, way too good to go unheard. Hence, what you're now about to listen to. One final note, one of the main roles they say of a sports broadcaster is to remain impartial. But I'll tell you right now, even though I'm working on the Bathurst coverage this weekend, I would like nothing, and I mean nothing more, than to see little Jackie Perkins win the big race. Good luck, mate. All right, now to the Perkins men. Oh, my Jaja, tell me why won't they open up their eyes? They could help out if they try, try, try. If they would try, try, try. Well, the two Perkins men in the same room. Great to see you both. Welcome to the How- Howie Games to Larry and Jack Perkins. Gay, Larry. Well, thank you. Good to be here. And Jack, you're sitting here with your old man. This is going to be interesting. We've never done two people in one go before. No, I'm looking forward to it, Howie. I've, I've listened to a couple of your Howie games so far and uh, getting in the spirit for Bathurst already. Looking forward to it. Yeah, well, it's a big Bathurst weekend coming up for you when uh, when this goes to air. But uh, I guess to start at the start, we really need your old man here as well, who's passed away a long time ago. But Eddie, he, he was the one that started off this racing obsession, I guess you'd call it, Larry. Yes, that's right. My dad, uh, Eddie, he started well, after the war. He um, he made various, uh, they called them specials, and open-wheeler race cars for hill climbing. He made a Lancia special in 1951 and then a V-Dub special in 1956. But he really uh, did well in those round Australia trials. He did all, all of them, starting with the Red X, and uh, he had very good success. You know, up on the farm, we were always racing. But, yes, it was his uh, link to uh, racing that I suppose uh, got my interest up and uh, that's where I thought, hey, that's what I want to do. So but, when when did you first jump behind the wheel of a, a car or vehicle of any type? Well, um, 
you know, he, he was always pestering Dad, oh, can I have a drive, can I have a drive, whether it be sitting on his knee in the old Land Rover, uh, <laughs> which I've got downstairs, I might add, and, uh, or, or on the tractor. But I do remember very early days we had an old 1930s uh, uh, McCormick Deering tractor and I was pestering Dad for a drive. He said, OK, I'll be in the seat. And uh, he jumped off and started walking home. I could not believe it. I, I reckon I was, I reckon I was about eight. And he come back a couple of hours later, and the tractor was still going. I, I can't recall how straight the furrows were, but I got the shock of my life when he jumped off and walked home. But yeah, I think Dad uh, was a believer of you know throw you in the deep end and there you go. When did you learn to drive a car like you need to drive a car to race? Was it on the farm up in? Uh Southern New South Wales, Northern Victoria? Yeah, it was in the Mallee. I mean, I grew up on the farm and uh, at early uh, days, my, I got uh, three brothers and uh, and and a sister and my dad bought uh, off, off the old neighbour an old A-model Ford, 1929 A-model Ford when I reckon I was about 12 and that was, we had to share with the brothers and, uh, you know, on a farm, you, all you do is hair around. You, you spotlight in the night and hair around the day and... Uh, and, and you know, in theory, go to school in between, but um, in theory, in theory, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, it was just a foregone thing. You had to learn to drive. If you didn't learn to drive properly, uh, and you're busy out, uh, you know, doing something on the farm, chasing some you know animal that shouldn't be there, and you messed up the drive, and you were quickly reefed out of the seat. You know, because another brother wanted to have a go. Yeah, so okay. yeah, the competitive uh, spirit was there from day one. And. At what stage do you start thinking maybe I could make a career out of this? You you, you left Kawanji. Why did you leave? Because you're a small town boy in a small town. You had everything you needed there. Yeah, but uh, I left school uh, when I was 14 and uh, I was uh, water boring um, uh, for a State Rivers and Water Supply Commission and I got up to uh, when I was 18 and got my licence and... You know, a few of my mates at the time um, discovered drink, as I did when I was 18, but th- those uh, mates of mine, unfortunately, too many of them found uh, the problem with it and car accidents and, and got killed. And um, I thought, this is a bit of a dead-end right. path I'm in, and I, I want to go to... Uh, I want to go racing. I suppose I almost had a, a, a feeling in my head that, you know, I used to race around a lot without the drink, whereas everyone was convinced racing and uh, crashing went together. And I, I had this little thing in my head, I'm going to prove that you can go racing and not be the one that ends up in the tree. The drink's the problem. And uh, I saw that early on, went to Melbourne, got a job down here. And uh, at that stage, about 18 and a half I was, I, I wanted to go Formula One race. And I had every desire in the world. That's what my calling in life was. Get over to Europe, get into Formula One, and, uh, you know, leave all the touring car racing that we now know in Australia. That was the kids' stuff. You know, I, wanted to, I didn't want to be king of the kids. I wanted to be the king. Gee, it's a, it's a grand plan. What did you used to see? How did you get news about Formula One back in Australia? Then when are we talking, 19... 19... started in 1968, uh, my interest on that. And I subscribed to the English um, motorsport news, I think it was, and I'd eagerly wait every... Mail, you know, every once a week, I think it was, to read all about it. And I had my big fans. Jimmy Clark was on Yock and Rent. Uh, I thought, oh, God, I've got to be able to race against them blokes. You know, that, that's me, I guess. 
you know, you, you were, I was very, very focused on that's what I wanted to do. And That's uh, a long way from Melbourne in Australia, though, mate, to get over to Europe. Yeah, it is. But, see, when you've got a strong desire to do something, you don't see the uh, obstacles in your way. You just overcome them. And, uh, mm. you know, money today, we all talk about money. Well, even back then everyone talked about money, but you didn't worry about that. You just got on with it and uh, made, made you know, you made uh, do what, whatever you had. And, uh, yeah, I was pretty happy to end up in Europe. How'd you get there? Well, I, I got my Formula V race car, which I... Uh, because I didn't drink or smoke as such, I saved my money and I bought a Formula V. Quickly start winning some races and Bib Stillwell's uh, team invited me to drive his Formula Ford. Uh, Then the the very next year I won the championship, which was a a paid trip to Europe, uh, paid uh, for the person. Uh, The Elfin Sports Car Company uh, loaned me a race car to go on the world stage of Formula Ford in England. I did that. I, I did well in that. I think I finished fifth out of 120 cars, but it was extremely competitive. And then uh, a European company immediately gave me a Formula 3 to do the next year. And it snowballed in, and within a couple of years, I'd, I won the European Formula 3 championship, which was the forerunner to Formula 1. And then, but then when you went to Europe the first time, I remember you saying that the, the British Formula Ford... <coughs> Your first practice session, you look through the timesheets and you're used to seeing your name on the top and three pages later you're down in 120th position or something. Was that right? Yeah, that's right. It was the world final of Formula Ford and (laughs) um, uh, that was in uh, 1972 because I I went, uh, that's when I could afford to go and I'd come from just winning the Australian Formula 2 championship where I won... uh, uh, got second in my first race and won the next eight straight, go over then to Europe and uh, after the first session, yeah, I, I had to turn to page three of the timesheet to find my name. It, you know, it was actually 96th, if I remember rightly, and a good mate of mine, Bob Skelton, an Australian race driver of note, he was about 100th even, and another guy, John Leftler, was 104th. I thought, holy God, this... This is, this is a shock to the system. That was in the first practice session. The next qualifying session, I was equal third. There was uh, eight of us on the same time. So you picked up 93 spots. I, I picked up 90-odd spots. But you had to step it up. That's oh, the difference between Australia and Europe, wasn't it? That's right. I thought When I thought I was on the limit, I was only di- toying around. So I really got on the limit. And I looked, looked down the sheet, as I just said, saw my name. I was in eighth but equal third. And uh, Bob and uh, John Leffler were still way back where they were. And they, if, if you like, with respect to them, didn't rise to the occasion and I got on top of it. So you, you wanted to race in Formula One. Can you remember what it was like the first time you got a start and what was Formula One like at that stage? It was, well, it was a dangerous sport for a start. I, I do remember going down to Nürburgring straight, uh, which was about three miles long, I think it was, and I watched the front tyres grow about two inches in diameter and I thought, my God, I can't believe this. And you look at the, work out the roofs and you're doing about 190 mile an hour and think, oh, this is a bit different. And... Uh, <laughs> But this uh, Nürburgring is a pretty tricky place and there's a place where you go downhill for about a kilometre and have a sharp pull out at the bottom and go up a hill. And uh, I was honking down there flat out, you know, because everything was flat out. And uh, the pull out on the bottom of this uh, bitumen bent all the wheels up all the suspensions up, if you could imagine what I mean. So that had to get fixed. We missed more sessions at fixing all that. And uh, the next time I go out, um, 
I'm, I'm honking around the corner and uh, it's raining on the other side of the hill, which was a notorious place for this. And, mm. and I sp- spun off on, on my slicks. As soon as I come over the hill, hit the rain and spun off and backed it into the fence and we didn't have enough spare parts to fix it. So that was my first foray into Formula One at, at the only track uh, that I, the track I had my sights on all my life. I wanted to race at the old Nürburgring and I at least got there to have a qualifying run. Were you good enough? If you had the right equipment, could you have been a success in F1? Well, in my mind, uh, certainly way back then, absolutely. Uh, um, I was very happy with my eighth position in my second only race. Uh, I then missed races. I, I went to my first race with Bernie Eccleston was the Canadian Grand Prix. And uh, I, I, quali- I can't recall where I qualified, but it was maybe 14th or 16th or something. And... Um, uh, but before that, and talk about um, um, competitiveness, when, when go back a couple of months to when the Dutch team went broke, uh, they were running it badly and I convinced them to let me run it with a couple of Dutch apprentices and we went to the um, uh, Monza Grand Prix and uh, so towed, towed the car down as a trailer and... Uh, uh, and here I am in the middle of the Grand Prix. And, Is that uh, when they had the old banking at the park? No, no, not the banking. It's right. the track almost as you see it the day without the chicanes. But long story short, I qualified 11th on the grid there. I split uh, Gunnar Nielsen and Mario Andretti in the works lotuses. So, I mean, I, I knew I was massively competitive. And that was just for the privately run <clears throat> the team we had mm. and my two apprentices. But the uh, Canadian Grand Prix uh, in the first corner melee, I, I spun and got going and finished the uh, finished well back. But I do recall uh, I, I when the team was when the leaders were slowly catching me to potentially lap me. I ran many many laps with them without them lapping me, and I remember Bernie saying, "Hey, good effort there. You your pace is great." Um, then went to the Watkins Glen race. The car uh, broke a wishbone in the in the race when I was midfield somewhere. Then I'll go to the Japanese race and uh, my first practice session. I was fourth fastest overall, and my teammate Carlos Parche was behind me, and and he wanted my car, and uh, because uh, for obvious reasons and. Uh, once we swapped cars, I lost my momentum. My, my second car didn't handle as good as the first one, and I, I dropped back, and uh, was back in the pack at the start of the race. And that's that notoriously wet Fuji Grand Prix, and it was so so wet on the warm up. I couldn't even get out of the pits without spinning. I think, and eventually, uh, on the warm up of the warm up an hour or two before the race I had a big crash and busted it all up they fixed it and I started the race and Bernie wanted me to if I could start start and um yeah get it do what I could and I I came in on the very first lap I said Bernie look I can't uh, uh, I'll crash your car again I don't want to write your car off and the second lap Nicky Lauder came in and put it away as well so people tend to think Nicky Lauder was the first to call it quits it's actually I uh, not because I was um, uh, afraid of the conditions I just could not control the car and I knew I was going to write off another Formula 1 car but that uh, then was uh, the part of the commercial um, realities of life. Uh, Bernie still wanted me, you know, to drive the next year for him, but Martini and Rossi was the sponsor, and they were really uh, 
saying to Bernie, look, you know, we don't even sell a bottle of this stuff in Australia. We've got <laughs> Clay Regazzoni, who's just left Ferrari, and he's a big shot. They, he, he, you know, you've got to give him a drive. And long story short, Bernie kept sitting on the fence till another team went broken. Uh, John Watson, who was a regular Formula 1, become available, and uh, Bernie grabbed him up and rang me up and said, look, I'm, I'm grabbing Watson and uh, I'll have to let you go. And... Uh, which I totally understood. Uh, he had to run a team and he had to keep sponsors. Jack sent me a photo the other day of uh, a third fellow whose Jack name, name Jack will tell me, but you and Bernie playing golf together. It's <laughs> really outrageous. Who was the third chap? That was Carlos Pache, a Brazilian, right. a, great, a great Brazilian driver. Who, uh, he was my teammate at the three races I did for Bernie and we got on well. And, uh, so could you see at that stage that Bernie would become what he became? Oh yeah, he was he was the boss. He he he, he knew what he was doing, and uh, I sat with Bernie many a time at the you know table, if you like, at night times uh, after the um, practices and so on in the, in the Grand Prix I did, and um, you know he he just knew what he was doing, and but he was a man of a few words, and but very always very clear. You never always knew where you stood. We touched on the risks of racing earlier on, and this is a part of what you guys both do you've both been to racetracks jack and you and i were in bathurst when mark porter died up the top of the mountain i'm sure you've been in a lot of racetracks where you've been involved in races themselves how do you both deal with it firstly how do you deal with it larry knowing that you're getting in there and in your day especially in f1 you actually were risking your life it's a bit different now but in those days you were well in formula one then it started uh, a huge amount of deaths around the late 60s uh, and, and it continued up right up to about 1977, 78. Um, I was in the South African Grand Prix in a BRM and I was running, you know, in a queue of uh, cars. I was right behind um, a, a particular car. I was, I was Jacques Lafitte in the Ligier, if I remember rightly. And uh, he was following another car. We've gone across. Uh, there's a, 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 a hill in the pit li- in the pit straight, and uh, there was a car ahead of him. And suddenly, I see a lot of debris flying through the air because we're doing 180 mile an hour. And I thought, what the <laughs> heck was that? And uh, uh, then I carry on for half a kilometre down to the end of the straight, still right behind Jacques Lafitte, and turn into a corner and saw. Uh, uh, Tony Bryce's car. Tom the, Tom Price. I'm sorry, uh, Tom Price's car, uh, well into the fence a little. That doesn't look good. So then we come around again, and I looked to where I saw all this flurry of activity. I saw uh, Tom Price's helmet uh, on the side of the road there, and I thought that's not good. And um, yeah, so that was he was killed immediately when a marshal ran across the track. And he hit the marshal, and the marshal's fire extinguisher hit him, took his head, uh, obviously, off. And um, so, but you were, you were hardened to it because it was happening so often. And did you um, think about it? Did you lie in bed knowing it's going to rain tomorrow? There's a greater risk, or it didn't even cross your mind? No, it didn't cross your mind. Uh, it was it was just not even on your radar, other than it was there, but it was not a deterrent. Uh, uh, you know, I think every Formula One driver who, uh, had a, had a. It's, it's it's terrible to say, but you'd wonder if anyone would get injured or killed so you could get a drive. That's how 
intense the competition was and your desire wow. to succeed that you you completely put out of your own mind that it could be yourself. You, Jack, as I said, we were at Bathurst at that stage. You would have been in the development series, I guess, in that same event as Mark up the top of the mountain. I can still recall it was... There's all those expressions people use. I, I can... All I remember is disbelief that we were at Bathurst in a very safe time in a safe race car and someone had just died. Yeah, it's... I mean, that's 10 years ago now. It's coming up on exactly 10 years and that was my first year driving V8 supercars and um, the, the, the sort of not scary thing is, but, you know, I, I passed Mark when he'd spun and the second car behind me, unfortunately, hit his car and the rest, the rest is, you know, a sad, sad ending, but... Yeah, I guess like Dad says, you don't ever expect it to be you. You know, every race car driver is guilty of the fact they probably think they're a bit invincible in that element. And I guess the statistics show that it's still safer in the respect that more people have survived big crashes than not. But, um, yeah, I mean, a couple of years later, we had another unfortunate incident at Clipsal where yep. another guy passed away in the development series. But, you know, the, the categories now and the way motor racing is, there's an incredible amount of money spent on making sure the cars are safe, the driving apparel's better and the tracks are safer and, and the cars, obviously. So, look, touch wood that, you know, you don't want it to happen, but we're doing what we enjoy doing. Um, you know, I mean, any situation in life can present opportunities where it, you can get the, sure. the, the hammer hit on the table and, and, the sh- and the show's over, but at least if you're driving a race car, your last memories are enjoyable. Yeah, and, and you know... It's not compulsory to be a race car driver. Uh, this is the, the thing you got to remember. We, everyone does it voluntarily, fully aware of what they're doing. And uh, but it's it's a lot of credit has gone to the players that have made it safer, yep. especially in Formula One. And there's you know there were certain uh, guys. I mean, Jackie Stewart was a great pusher of safety. And yeah, when you were a young bloke entering the thing, you had very little. Um, horsepower in your voice as such uh, but once you were established you could start saying things and Jackie uh, and he had a yeah, a lot of guys followed uh, him and, and, and safety, it wasn't that hard to make things safer and that to, to today, to look at Formula 1 especially now today and of course we had supercars they're, they're so far ahead of where they were 30 years ago. What about as a dad can it's, it, you're not a racing car driver now. You're a dad, and it's your son. You, you'd remember back to that time at Bathurst. I'm sure you were there, and you would have spoke to Jack at the time. Well, I certainly uh, I remember it well. I don't know whether I spoke to Jack or not, as such. But uh, I do know that um, you know you don't have to remind anyone what what has just happened or what is going to happen. You know, all you can ever say to a driver, especially if it's young Jack is just concentrate, do your best and concentrate. Uh, you know, it's lack of concentration in some cases causes the crash of somebody. Um, but do you have fear as a father or because you've lived the same life, you look at it differently? Well, I, I do look at it differently. I don't have the same fear Jack's mother has, for instance, who is you know, like a cat on hot tin roof whenever Jack races. But it doesn't alter the fact that, uh, you know... Um, you want uh, uh, your son to be safe. That's that's I think uh, just a, you know a, a normal human reaction. I don't think anyone would not have that. But but you don't want to cloud it by uh, you know being all goo gar about it. And, you know uh, uh, you know upsetting him over things that, that 
yeah, we all know. It's it's funny that we're talking about it because imagine what Dad's parents were like. Oh. Dad's 26 racing Formula 1 every third Grand Prix someone's dying. The only way they're going to find out is probably a telegram. Like, oh, that's, that puts a different perspective on it, just thinking about that's the first time I've ever thought about what Dad's parents, my grandparents, thought of all that because that was a lot more dangerous than it is now. And, and they didn't daily know what was evening happening because I'd only write letters to them, whatever, once a week. You, you could never afford to ring up, so you didn't ring. So they were months behind on the news. And, uh, uh, it look, it's just a different era. That's the way it was. Were you a single bloke over at that stage? Oh, very much so. Uh, so was it, was it like I picture F1 in the 60s and 70s, Larry? Were they lined up to try and get a piece of Larry <laughs> Well, I, 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 I normally tell uh, when I was still back on the farm, I'd say me and my mates would go into the news agent and, you know, uh, read the things and my mates would all pick up the Playboy and read them and, I'd pick up the motor car books and I'd read them, but then we'd swap. And uh, um, but look, uh, I, I must admit that I, I uh, had great visions of becoming a Formula One and you know living in Monaco, all the fancy cars, James Hunt style, all the things. Uh, yeah, hey, you wouldn't be real if you didn't say that. Uh, you may not say it at the time, but uh, uh, that was all. Yeah, that, that'll suit me. That's better than water boring by a mile. And did it work out like that? Or <laughs> Well, I, I lived for two years in the back of my truck, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, trying to um, get there, and uh, I, I had uh, spasms over a couple of years of Formula One, where yeah, we were jetting all around the world. Uh, yeah, I went to the Argentina, I went to Brazil, I went to all the places, and and so on, and and you know, but the bit that's not said is when you're a race car driver. I didn't drink at all. I, I didn't drink uh, even a month before a race just in case the alcohol affected my judgment. I was extremely fit. I was always in bed early by 8.30. So you were a social boring person in reality because you were so focused on um, being successful in your in your job that everything else didn't matter and whether it be the social side of things or whatever you put that that was so far second uh, didn't it didn't even impinge on it but that doesn't mean to say i had i had a good uh, you know good existence in england you know i recall uh, just to touch on what you're trying to think about uh, i i had been living in my car for a couple of days at one stage and and Australian dude said, come to a party tonight. So oh, okay, I'll go to the party. That'll get me out of the car. And uh, it was a, a, t- a couple of flats here with eight Australian girls living in it. And uh, I remember I left about eight months later. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I was still normal. It's a, long, it's a long way to go just to hang out with Australian girls, though. <laughs> oh, well, everyone hangs out with their own kind. Uh, you, you, you just evolve to, to that for some reason. <laughs> Time for a quick break from Larry and Jack to let you know what's up next Thursday on the Howie Games. It's the legend himself, Pickle Dino. Who, Penguin? Dino, the king of the MCG. You know, he smoked 210 against the Indians at Madras. Oh, the legend, he comes out swinging in next week's ep. Got to the ground at Trinidad where it's been raining a little bit, and Steve Smith, a different Steve Smith yep. back there, a very good opening batsman, um, obviously saw the pitch, looked at the looked at the scoreboard and had Malcolm Marshall, Garner, Roberts holding and said, no, I'm not playing, and I got my first game. So I batted six. 
So, so you reckon he had a look at what was going on and thought oh, that's not for no me? no doubt whatsoever. Really? Yeah. Well, no doubt whatsoever. That's Dean Jones in next Thursday on the How We Game, my daddy's podcast. This episode will go to air on the Thursday before Bathurst and the Perkins name is synonymous with Bathurst. You, you spoke earlier on about Brocky and not really wanting to race and then all of a sudden you're racing Bathurst with Brocky. And three, three on the trot. Yeah, we had we had a Sandown win and three uh, Bathurst on the trot. Was it hard to come back and give up on your dream? You said at the start that you, you didn't really have interest in the V8s and you wanted to be an F1 driver. You've done that, and then you've come back and you've almost been shoehorned back into something. Well, it was hard, and I was at a loss to know what to do because when you've spent the last ten, fifteen years of your life trying to do something and it didn't work out. I mean, you have real withdrawal uh, symptoms. Uh, I think that's the right word. You think, well, what am I going to do? So I did sort of uh, the silly things. I, 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 made, I made the world's first solar-powered car with uh, Hans Holstrap. I designed that and made that. Uh, then I you know, made a rally car. And But I was at a dead-set loss what to do because I didn't actually have a job I had and no money. I was scratching around. I know I borrowed some money off my dear old mum who had no money. Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> I thought, oh, so when Brocky's offer come along, I thought, oh, yeah, maybe I'd better get a job. And and I sort of had, had shrugged off the disappointment of Europe uh, over a year or two and realised, hey, I better get focused. And, and I got married at that stage and I thought, okay, we'll, um, we'll take the job of running Brocky's workshop and we'll, we'll, we'll do his double driving stint where he wants, you know, even that that wasn't my focus. And that all worked out good. Worked out good, worked out so well you won three Bathurst on the trot together. That's right, I did. I suppose that's called, well, pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, and, I uh, thought so. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that, that uh, ended um, I, I, in the middle of 85 and Peter, uh, you know, uh, had given me a contract to run the race team and, and, and he and I got on well and uh, he brought the polarizer in, which I didn't agree with, and... Um, he uh, asked me then that if I'd, you know, I'd have to leave the contract and I said, no, I understand, no problem. So we had a split. We shook hands and had a split. It all only took, you know, half an hour. It was not a big deal. And, was um, this when he was putting crystals and that type of stuff? In yeah, he got a bit carried away with things that uh, I couldn't agree with. Well, it's not your go. You're an engineer <laughs> way back. Yeah, it's not so my what, what were the crystals of, you know, I only hear that, you know, Brocky was putting crystals in his car. What, what does even that mean? Well, uh, you're probably asking the wrong guy, but um, the, the you, you need to ask uh, Paul Gover, who, you know, one of our notoriety uh, motorsport journalists who said it made it made a big difference when he drove the car, but I think he might have had a bit of licence when he said that. But, no, it's supposed to align the... Uh, uh, molecules up perfectly in order and in step, and I have no idea what it means. I'm only rabbiting on here, but uh, <laughs> I couldn't. Uh, there certainly we, we could find no facts to support that did any of that. What did you win for your first Bathurst? What was the prize for your first Bathurst win? I tell you, it was a hundred thousand dollars. Hundred thousand bucks. And I might add, I didn't win that. I only won the three Bathursts with Peter, and each time the prize was a hundred thousand dollars. So. I, I, I th- it was a huge amount of money Big way money. back then, absolutely, and uh, I, I don't even recall if I got a split of it. I, uh, probably not, but um, but well, no, it was good money. So you would have just been paid as a driver. Yeah, I, I, I was just on a salary, but I do recall 
that when I started on a certain wage with Peter on year one, and he wanted me then to do year two, so I said, well, the wage is double, and he ran and raved a bit, and uh, but he signed. And then the third year, I said, it's double again, and he was really getting iffy for that. But I said, well, anyway, so he won again. So it, it, I was I was well paid. I was um, saving my money. I always saved my money. Uh, and then when when I split with him, I had a few bucks in my back pocket. Was able to start my own business. Was he? It's going to be really interesting the next few months in Australia because they're bringing out a, a telly movie about Brocky, and we see Brocky as this lionised character that could do no wrong. It'll be. It'd be really interesting to know how they approach that. W- was he that special in the car? Oh, the, the pity uh, at the time he was obviously excellent in the car, but there was other guys who who could match him. And um, versus though today, there's fifteen of the uh, of the fif- at least fifteen guys in the in the pit lane, if you like. That they're all as good as one another, and. Um, so, so way back then, uh, and I just made a comment uh, on the weekend at Sandown that, uh, you know, when back in those days, it was either Moffat or either Rocket won, and, mm. and that's not the taking anything away from them. It's just that there wasn't the amount of competition that there is today. It's so much harder to win today. But, no, he, he, he was very fortunate that he had... Uh, you know, his ability was fine. He never made mistakes. But his ability off track to raise money and and so on, it just, you know, it just happened. It was not even a... It, it, there was no stress at all for him to have the sponsorships. And uh, so he had a well-funded team always. And, uh, again, that's because, you know, he, he made it happen for himself. So he used all the... Uh, you know, all the ammunition that you need and put it together and he was very successful. But he also blew it apart because of this polarizer. He, you know, don't forget he went on to hot up louders and, you know, Russian louders and I, I think he might have hotted up Gogamobiles or something like that. I mean, yeah, there was a downside where he was, you know, he, he got a bit lost, you know, but we've probably all got areas where we've been lost. But I always got on well with him. We didn't socialise together. He... he he, he followed Collingwood, and I weren't a heavy football follower, except I'm a Geelong man now. And um, you jumped on. <laughs> I, thought you, I thought you were West Coast. <laughs> and, and, no, no, that was way back when they were winning. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I'm, I, I'm loyal, you see. Will you be interested to see how he is treated? I mentioned that that movie that's coming. Well, up. it will be. And uh, I was asked, uh, for instance. Uh, uh, you know, if I'd participate in a movie, and I totally declined because I, I felt a, mo- a movie should be, if it's a documentary, should encompass everything. Uh, and uh, to make then a documentary, because there was a downside to Brocky on the various things I mentioned, I didn't, didn't think it was fair to make a doco when there's a downside and the guy can't respond. So I was very happy not to participate. And, uh, um, you know, I, I, I hope they. Uh, do a good job of it and so on, but there's, no, it's not my cup of tea to make docos after the event. Gee, we've had a, a long chat about Formula One and uh, you've still got three Bathurst to go. Jack, you, you come into this family of motorcar racing legends. Is it a help or a hindrance to have the name Perkins? Well, it you know, it would probably work out that it's a bit of both in terms of me pursuing a career in the same industry, but 
I only ever grew up with one mum and one dad, so I never knew any different, but motor racing was always my interest. I've been to every Bathurst since I was born in 86 and watched them all on tape a hundred times. You know, whenever I'd get home from school, I'd throw an old Bathurst on and I could almost tell you every lap of every Bathurst since about 1990 because that's what I enjoy the most. But now I look back and I can see why for my birthdays, mum and dad would keep buying me more golf clubs and things because it's a, it's a <laughs> tough gig to get to this level and I think it's only getting tougher um, uh, uh, for various reasons. The first one is obviously dad's touched on there's a lot of competition. There's still that issue in motorsport where it costs quite a lot of money by comparison to other ball sports and to sort of showcase your talent, it's very difficult. But I enjoy driving cars, I enjoy driving golf buggies, I enjoy driving the forklift here at the workshop. I just enjoy driving stuff with the steering wheel. It makes me happy. So that's what I've chosen to do. And now I'm lucky, this is my 10th Bathurst this year. I'm driving with the Holden Racing Team. So I've, I've been able to tick a few boxes along the way. Did you want what, to race? What you didn't say, Jack, though, is when you started in go-karts, uh, you know, seven years old or whatever, you'd be at the go-kart track and the amount of people I'd come up uh, the amount of people I'd see come up to you, you know, adults, and say, G'day, young Jack, do you think you'll ever win as many Bathurst as your old man? And and this style of chat was around you constantly, whereas the other mates in go-karts on the grid, you know, whether it be the Tim Slades and, and others uh, who grew up, never had that pressure. And it was pressure that you might have known, but I could see it, where, you know, you, it was constant pressure to to try to... Uh, you know, answer to that, which isn't there normally. You know, normally you're a freestanding bloke, so you had that all along, and 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 you didn't mention. And um, and even though today now, people, uh, you know, people for some reason think that if you've gone through car racing and you come out the other end, you're extremely wealthy. So now it's it, it's yeah, you know, get the old man. He can pay the half a million bucks for a season's racing. Well. I've got news for you. There's no half million bucks lying around, folks, in car racing. So don't they always say that to become a millionaire in motorsport, you got to start with three million? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly so, right. so yeah. So there's been this expectation. Oh yeah, well, Jack will come along. He'll be able to bring some money, probably. You know, uh, which all you know falsehoods. There was no way that could happen. You so see. did you try and steer him away from it? You you saw this happening, obviously, from a young age. Oh, yeah. No, I didn't try to steer either. I wanted to be neutral on it. And uh, for sure, I do recall buying a got pair of golf clubs once, uh, you know. And, uh, but, no, look, people, uh, I, I've let both my kids, uh, it's their life. They've got to do what they want to do. You try to make some general guidance and uh, offer some form of uh, education and at the end of the day that's their life they're going to do what they want to do and because that's what I did I, I did it what I wanted to do without uh, interference from my mum or dad uh, not that I was aware of any interference they could have been that's why I wanted to do it with with Jack and my daughter Nicola they, that's they, it's their world is there fear racing around that Bathurst track, like I go there every year and I see what you guys do and I see how quickly the weather changes and everything seems to be in so much control until it's not in control out there. <laughs> yeah, there it was. I remember when I first went there, driving down the front straight, no, the Conrad straight, and you're doing nearly 300k an hour and back then the, the doors used to flare out from the top and you, you could sort of see daylight near the roof. And those sorts of things were a bit spooky when I first started but now it feels slow, you know, you've done that many laps around there. I was fortunate enough um, in 2014 to qualify in the top 10 shootout. 
like I've done a low two minutes six and things like that give you confidence when you go there. And now I feel like a veteran. I feel like the place doesn't scare me. You've still got to treat it with a lot of respect, mind you, because something that Dad taught me when I was really young is that you know Bathurst is actually a really easy race to win, but it's even easier to lose. You know, plenty of blokes, teams, drivers have lost the race, but not as many have won, and that's a pretty true statement. So. You know, in a co-driver capacity, you've got to remember to drive within your limits. So for me, in the last couple of seasons, it's it's all about giving the car back to the lead driver in one piece. Um, but yeah, I love Bathurst. It's it's our AFL Grand Final. It's the Melbourne Cup for horse racing. It's the one race where people that don't even watch motor racing mm. just quietly ease the TV on on a Sunday and they want to know who's won or who's winning Bathurst. And for me, that's the, the one I want to get. A very, very short spell before we go back to the Perkins men. Thanks for all the messages from last week's episode of the Howie Games. Continue to let us know what you think on Twitter or Facebook at MarkHoward03. The Jack Jones app last week certainly made an impression on a lot of people. Please go back and take a listen to Jack in app 6 if you haven't heard it. A man who played in seven straight VFL grand finals with Essendon from 1946. And before that, a man who went to war. I can honestly say... We never had fear, or I didn't, because he had, he had no time to think about it anyway. You had to keep going. You couldn't you couldn't pull out, as the saying goes, because all your mates are with you. Just doing what we had to do at work. Yeah, that's right, exactly. And I know it sounds... It's bloody extraordinary, mate, when you talk about it. It like is, that. but you couldn't afford to be sorrowful. Yeah. You know, what, 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 what are you doing? I always say that worry about the things you can handle... Don't worry about things that you can't handle. So that, that was one of those positions that I was, we were in. Jack Jones, a true Australian legend. Time to go back to Larry and Jack Perkins. Your first Bathurst, Jack, you were inexperienced, to put it mildly. I was in the pit lane at Channel 10 and was reasonably inexperienced and I look back on it and I would handle it completely different these days. I think... Um, You'll describe the incident, but I, I actually think it's one of the more unfair things I've ever seen at a sporting event, what took place that day, and the way you were blamed for things were out of your control. And I, I look back on it now, um, and I'd treat it a lot differently. I'd probably call those to task that were involved rather than just talking to those that got involved in an incident. You were involved in an incident with Mark Scaife, and I didn't speak to Mark afterwards. I think someone else did, and he blamed you for it. Um, and I look back on it. It was really unfair, mate. Really, really unfair what happened that day, I reckon. Yeah, it's funny because uh, I remember I remember it clear as day. Like, it was my our first Bathurst. The, the two lead drivers in Dad's team were Richo and Dumbrell. They were in contention to win the race all weekend. And Shane and I were just the young guys. Shane Price and I were the young guys in the second car. And no pressure, no expectations. And we were just doing the best we could, learning quite a lot. We'd done well on the Saturday in the development series, finishing second and third. Um, you know, in tough circumstances, obviously with 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 Mark Porter passing on the Saturday uh, in the in the race, sorry. And um, but yeah, I mean, I just wanted to keep out of trouble. I started about twenty fourth, come out of turn one, and one of the other cars tried to run me off the road, and I backed off the throttle and just settled in behind him. And we're honking down Mountain Straight, and you come up over the crest there. And for anyone that's been there, it's a it's quite a decent little crest in the hill. Just pull top gear two hundred and forty k's an hour. And then basically blinded by a stationary car, I hadn't seen that a couple of cars in front of me had darted out of the way and it was Mark Scaife who was the race favourite, started from pole position limping down the straight, he'd cooked his clutch and I guess straight away I actually thought I'd hit the second HRT car, the Jim Richards car, but I didn't even know that Scaife had sort of buggered his start and was way back then. But 
Yeah, it's funny. I mean, a lot of people blame me, but to this day, I've picked up a lot of Ford fans from that. <laughs> There's a lot of guys that remember me for, for, for taking out the Holden guy and a few Ford people took me on board that day. But yeah, I, I guess the consensus was it was my fault being the young guy. But, you know, I've had people like Garth Tander, who was Scaife's co-driver, tell me, you know, not long after that that car was never going to finish the race with the, the clutch in its in that condition and I remember about a week later Stephen Richards did a Triple M radio interview and the guys were giving him a bit of stick about me costing Scaife the race and Richo corrected him and said well actually Scaife stuffed Jacks versus Bathurst yeah and uh, that's and I wish I'd had the wherewithal to say that at the time I don't know Larry you, you would have been watching this as well, well uh, I've I, really felt for Jack in that situation yeah it's it's um yeah when you've got a guy like Mark Chafe, you know, pole position, his uh, words sound louder than everyone else's and that's not right. Do. And uh, if I had been Mark Chafe, and this is, the, you know, when you're over a blind hill and you're doing 30 k's, he knew everyone else was doing 250. There was 20, 25-odd uh, cars we were all going to parving. He must have known, hey, this is pretty, pretty risky. Mm. And, and I tell you... Uh, he was probably at fault by not getting off the track. He could have got off the track before the hill because there was only, you know, you're rolling the dice, you know, 50, you know, your closing speed of over 250k or 230k. Yeah, and uh, especially in Jack's first race, uh, I, I remember him saying to him, hey, just uh, keep it, you know, uh, pay attention, etc. But I didn't say watch out for a car stationary over the hill. <laughs> uh, and it wouldn't have been in uh, Jack's radar uh, or in a, a pigeonhole of predetermined things because it was unexpected and for sure, you know, 30 bathers on, you have a different view. But, uh, it, yeah, it was very, I felt it was very unfair. I didn't say anything or weigh into it because it really, at the end of the day, was an accident. But to try to apportion... Uh, um, a greater portion to Jack was was grossly unfair. Jack, what a lot of people won't realise is uh, by hook or by crook and you love a racing, you ended up breaking some pretty serious rules to continue racing when you got crook, mate. So actually you break some really serious rules when you found out you were diabetic. How did it all come to pass? Were you, did you yeah. not feel well in yourself? or like how, how do you come to find that you've got diabetes first? Well, that, that's 10 years ago as well. Yeah. It's funny, there's a few anniversaries floating around, but... Uh, it was the first year of driving V8 supercars in the development series and we were having, as you know, a pretty good year. I ended up finishing third in the championship. And between Sandown and Bathurst back in 2006 was the Malala Fujitsu Series round. Shocking joint. <laughs> so Shocking joint. 40 minutes Malala. north of Adelaide Come in, the, on. in the middle of nowhere. But that, that oh. was a standalone round and it was fun because it was between Sandown and Bathurst and it was a way to you know keep driving. Back then, we'd, all we wanted to do was go driving. And I remember Sandown... Um, I'd got the flu. I was pretty crook. Um, you know, you get the flu, you don't think much of it. But as that continued a week or two later, I ended up losing a lot of weight. I become really thirsty. And with that, you comes a lot of trips to the toilet. And then in the end, my eyesight just deteriorated a bit more than normal. I've always worn glasses, but it was a bit more than normal. So it was the Wednesday of Malala. And I went to my eye doctor and said, hey, I need some new glasses real quick because I'm racing this weekend told him all that stuff and he said you've got diabetes and that didn't mean much to me at the time but uh, later that night I was admitted into hospital and you know got told then that I had diabetes and there was injections and things it didn't mean much at the time either and then 
I don't know whether it was dad or, or me or whatever, but the, the diagnosing doctor at the time knew who we were and we were involved in car racing. He just said, yeah, yeah you won't be able to race cars again. Full stop. And, yeah, full stop. And that, that was a bit strange and that took about a day to sort of sink in. And, and it was the Thursday afternoon. I was still in hospital and I sort of thought, what do you mean I can't race cars? So I've got arms and legs. I still had a bit of cheek and felt pretty, f- not fine, but I felt okay. And uh, I said, for all I know, if I don't tell anyone I've actually got this, for all I know, Craig Lowndes might have it or Peter Brock might have had it or anyone. So from that point on, I thought, well, I'm going to keep this to myself. Mum, dad, a couple of close friends knew. And I checked myself out of hospital, went to Malala, qualified second or third, um, had a good couple of races. The engine failed in the third race, but got through the weekend. I thought, what's the issue here? You know, no I, worries. It wasn't something I took lightly, though. I started... You know, I worked out how to prick my fingers and check my blood. I had notepads and I was... Changed your diet Yeah, pretty, pretty switched on. Um, well, lucky I had a good education, which meant that you can't turn a blind eye on these things. I knew that if I had to be good enough to drive a car, but also for the blokes that I was racing. And I, I just pressed on. And, um, you know, through a lot of discipline to make sure that I was never going to be at a risk. And, yeah, I mean, looking back on it, it was a risky thing to do. But if, if I had just listened to the doctor and not gone car racing, then all mm. my dreams would have been squashed in an instant. And, um, you know, I've quickly worked out that I can still race 10 years later and also around the world, plenty of people with diabetes are getting on with their life. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the hardest thing and a couple of things I did do looking back on it, I mean, when I went to 2007, the year after to get my CAMS licence, it said, you know, it says there's a box there. Are you a diabetic? Yes or no? I just tick no. And then, you, you know, knew this was happening, obviously, Larry. <laughs> Yes, I did actually. And um, were you advising him to <clears throat> think no in situations like this? I don't believe I uh, w- was asked or told, to be honest. But but I weren't surprised that he ticked no because I would have ticked no myself. Yeah. But you know, there was other issues that, that Jack has mentioned. He still had to pass medicals and uh, with your to get your ordinary CAMS license, and um, this will probably uh, Sardar will probably come down on this, Jack, but. <laughs> Jack managed to pass the medicals with the aid of some of his good mates in the urine test, which is a giveaway. Um, so we won't go any further into that. You want to be uh, careful who you get <laughs> the urine from. I, oh, I know, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, this is what you do when you when you yeah you desire to do something that's strong. Uh, the, the alternative is just lie down under a tree and slowly pass away. So uh, hmm. I, I was very much supportive of uh, you've still got to do be enthusiastic about what you do. And, Jack, you haven't mentioned, though, that the, the problems in uh, CAMS, the CAM system, if you like, automatically said, oh, if you're diabetic, you can't race. So Jack had yeah. to do an awful lot of homework and lobby and, if you like, for CAMS to change their rules. Uh, and Jack's ended up with a good rapport with the CAMS doctor and that's been a, a, a real game-changer for people with diabetics. But well, he's pioneered diabetic... Well, yes, up to Jack's case, you weren't allowed to race if you had diabetics. Well, you were probably just ticking the no box, didn't you? Yeah. Before you. That's the the missing part of the story, I guess, when I then raced all through 2007. And it was a tough year because, you know, originally we were going to do the Fujitsu series again, but then there were some issues with the team and there was supposed to be another guy driving the car and then that all fell through and then Dad said, I need you to drive the car. And so I ended up driving the main series, but the results weren't forthcoming. It was a tough year and privately I was living with the fact that I was on five injections a day and trying to keep all that a secret and it was just all too much so I just said look in the, the day I'm going to step out of this come public with it get that off 
my shoulder. So then the following year, I go for my CAMS license and I tick the box that says yes. They go, oh, you can't race. I said, well, hang on. I've just done it for 18 months. I'll tell you how I do it, why I do it, why it's fine. And now you give me a reason why I can't race. And I snookered them. And with, <laughs> you know, with, with respect, it's, I mean, it's not quite snookered, but I proved to them that with some discipline, good management, some brains, um, that you could do it, you know, and I, I ran half marathons, I did triathlons, and I did everything I could to prepare myself to go car racing with diabetes and everything along the way. hasn't. I won't say it's been easy, but you've still got to mm. put a little bit of effort into it, but it's no different to the car. The mechanics need to prepare the car meticulously, and I need to spend a little bit of extra effort in my preparation to get myself fit enough to go drive in. When you were finding out, did you have times in the car, and we can talk about it now, but did you have times in the car, like, do you have a bit of coke in the water bottle type setup to get you going at stages yeah yeah and i still do so that's something that since it's you know at the time it was hard to explain to mechanics why i needed two drink bottles but now every team you know i've gone to have been very warming and welcoming to it because uh, i guess they've hired me to be in their team for my driving talent and then the fact that i need that is no different to if you want a bigger steering wheel or a comfier seat it's just mm. part of my baggage so, you know, we joke about it now. Back then, Shane Price used to have a drink on my Gatorade or whatever I was drinking. But, um, and I only, only at Sandown, I had the Gatorade bottle there and I was telling James Courtney, if he wants a bit, he can have some. Because <laughs> you know, I started, he finished. So, but that's just what you do, you know. And, and I, didn't ha- I haven't, to this day, haven't, haven't had a single issue in the car. And I really put that down to a lot of discipline. You know, you can't be undisciplined with it. And that, that drink bottle of Coke was Coca-Cola, just for, <laughs> for the ones who were wondering. I've already got a starter on the notice. <laughs> I, I must admit, my first time I had a drug test in V8s was Perth, 2007, and at that stage I was still private, and I was crapping my dax that they'd see sugar in my urine and bust me for driving. But never heard anything, but I just remember the, the first drug test we had, because we get drug tested quite often, yep. and I just thought that may have uncovered me for whatever reason, but it, it didn't, and 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 been obviously drug tested plenty of times since without any issues. See, what uh, others are like, whether it be me or your team, teammates and teams, when you don't have this uh, uh, type of disease, you, you're not aware of a lot of things, and uh, it's a real eye-opener when you become aware of it and the, the problems... Uh, Associated with, but like Jack said from day one, there's an awful lot of people out there with something worse, and, mm. that, and that's the only attitude you can ha- have, and just get on with it and get over it. We move forward a little bit, and I've, <coughs> uh, as you blokes know, I started off working for your man Bernie a long time ago, Larry, <laughs> running camera cables around tracks. I've seen a lot of motorsport events over the stages, and I reckon one of the top three has been when uh, Jack and James won on the Gold Coast last year. Um, and Jack did that shocking Frank the Tank impersonation. <laughs> that uh, how was that for you? Oh, it was fantastic. And uh, um, Jack's mum and I, we don't go to the races as much. Uh, yeah, every now and again we might go to one, but to watch that, uh, it was it was it was pretty special because uh, I've known obviously all my life longer than Jack that that's all he wants to do, and to pick up a win, uh, especially uh, that one. Uh, I, I knew what he was going through, and uh, I was pretty happy for him. Is an understatement. And you, Jack, that day it was a ripping day. You've still got that surfboard. You haven't brought it down the coast yet <laughs> no, to actually give it a go. I'm too scared to <laughs> give it a go. But look, that's the that's the realization of your lifelong ambition. And there's been plenty of races where I've been in more competitive situations than that day, and we haven't even got a podium. Um, but you know, I think 
a lot of people talk about the race itself. It was a fuel race, but at the end of the day, like I said, there's been other races where I thought I could have won and I didn't for various reasons. But to win that race, um, the way James had been out with injury, I was supposed to drive with him the whole endurance campaign and I didn't. The first race he came back, we finished fifth and then on the Sunday we won. Um, it was just awesome, you know, and James was so inclusive of the fact that he shared half the day with me. You know, I, I think I handed the car over to him. I think we started 10th and I handed over in 8th. Like, it was nothing spectacular, but I didn't damage the car over the ripple strips. I didn't hit the fence. So I gave it back to him in one piece, and then the guys came up with a strategy that put us in the position to win the race. And I've heard about guys that have won Bathurst with other people that didn't share the limelight, um, but I can't. I couldn't think of anyone that, you know, James was just awesome about it. And to this day, we still joke about how it was such a great day and just to share it with someone that was, you know, really, it was a 50-50 deal, but it was such a team thing and it was a realisation of my dreams. And yeah, words, it's pretty hard to put it in words, actually. It's, I just hope that I get that feeling again because um, it's pretty cool. To get that feeling at Bathurst, what would you give up in your life <laughs> to win Bathurst? I was joking to James, actually. Um, we had our debrief after Sandown and... The team worked out that if we had a couple, done a couple of things different with the strategy, you know, we possibly could have won. I think we had the car speed there. And I said to James, if, if we were to win Bathurst, he might need to find someone else for the Gold Coast because I reckon <laughs> I'd be camped up there for a couple of weeks. But, look, we, we'll worry about that when, when it happens. But oh, we've left no stone unturned in our preparation. Yeah, this, is not, this is the Howie Games, Jack. We're not doing a press conference here. <laughs> what, what would it mean to you to win the actual race? Mate, I, I wouldn't be able to describe it. Dad's had six, I just want one. Um, that, that would be the ultimate. I think this year is our best chance, or my best chance, that, that you know, the team won at Sandown with the other car. I'm driving with James Courtney, who's on his day. No one can beat him. And um, Well, he's, yeah. he's a good dude, too. You just get on well. Yeah. And uh, you, no one would know this, but way back in his early go-kart days in Europe, uh, he was... Uh, Underfinanced guy, and uh, I heard on a grapevine he was short of money or something. And I do recall sending him uh, more than a couple of thousand bucks uh, yeah. to because uh, I, I was doing right here. We had good sponsorships. I thought, hang on, I need to share this. And uh, uh, I'm very pleased when I think about it that Jack's now driving with James. And uh, you know, he, he 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 it's not well known, but he was absolute top of the world uh, in his go kart days. And mm. arguably. Uh, could have, should have got into F1, but he didn't, and he he had all the hard yards to do back here, and uh, now Jack's sharing that with him, and uh, it'd be certainly great to see it happen. But he hasn't won one either, so we've we've been joking about a few things we do after the race if it happens. There's been a few rumours and things floating around, but look, I, I know it would mean the world to both of us, and it would be truly the best day in my life if if that could happen. Twenty five to one is the odds, Jack. There's only twenty five cars, so. <laughs> yeah, you got to be a chance. Would you give up one of yours to see your son win one, Larry? You got six. Oh God, yeah, yeah. Of course I would. If it meant my record said five and he's got a proper one, oh God, yeah, yeah, yeah. You do that because um, that's what uh, you know dads do. <laughs> the uh, the Howie Games normally finishes. Mm -hmm. uh, I got a couple of kids, Larry. One is uh, age six. She's a girl, and she operates under the nickname of the Pickle. 
and I've got a son who's four, and for some reason Larry decided a couple of years ago that he was going to change his name to The Big Penguin, and he will only answer to the name The Big Penguin. <laughs> and we normally finish this by uh, posing a question from the kids. I have a chat with them over breakfast who we're going to chat to. <laughs> so The Pickle, Larry, uh, is going to ask one to you via my phone. Hi, Larry. It's Pickle here. I know you're really, really old now, but when you were younger, would you have beaten Dan Ricardo? She thinks you're really, really old now, but in your heyday, LP, could you have beaten Ricardo? That's a very good question. <laughs> that is fantastic question, and thank you very much. I don't know if I could have beaten him, but I can tell you, even though I'm really, really, really old now, uh, I would have been trying really, really hard to beat him. And uh, I'd like to think I could have, could have beaten him, but I tell you, Daniel Ricardo is an absolute top top driver and I'm hoping he wins plenty of races and becomes world champion because he's fantastic. Before we get to, and well as before we get, because the Penguins got a question for you Jackie boy here, I love Lewis Hamilton, Jack knows I love Lewis Hamilton, he knows that I love showmen in sport, how do you view the business that's Lewis Hamilton, Larry? (laughs) Well, um... Uh, there's no doubting Lewis has got unbelievable ability and uh, he's right up there with lots of other era greats, you know, of, of uh, ability. He certainly got himself into a good team. There's no doubt about that. He appears to have the number on Rick uh, on Nico more often than the other way around. Um, I'm not sure sometimes it's all the gold chains and all that, but that's his personal world. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, look, you, you can't uh, knock a guy in any way, shape or form that's got a record of, uh, I think, 50 Grand Prix wins now. And it's phenomenal, his record. Yeah, it's a hell of a hell of a record and he rarely makes mistakes. Both him and Nico only make mistakes when they're near each other. But that's the competitive world. But, no, he's doing a great job. But there's only one bloke I hope can upstage him and that's Ricardo. All right. Uh, Jackie Boy, the big penguin, he was thinking long and hard over his cornflakes this morning. You never know what's going to come out of his mouth, but he is also a fan of Dan Ricardo. This is what the penguin came up with. Penguin, I like it. That's uh, the shoey. All the things that James and I, James Courtney and I, have spoken about when we win, we haven't spoken about a shoey actually. But uh, mate, if we get up, I will drink podium out of my shoe. I'll drink it out of James's shoe. If that's the way. They're, they're good problems, though. Strain a true underpants. Do anything. I might see if I can come up with something more unique between now and then. But they are good problems to have when you're thinking about your podium celebrations. That's for sure. Hey, Larry and Jack, it's the first time I've chatted with two people together. I've really enjoyed it. You guys filling in have made my job very easy. Thanks for having a chat with us, LP. Absolutely my pleasure. And Jackie, this will go out on Thursday at Bathurst. So, mate, uh, certainly everyone in the Howard household, including the big penguin, will be cheering that you get to drink <laughs> out of the boot, mate. Thanks, mate. Good to be on. Cheers. Thank you so much to Larry and Jack Perkins. Thanks also to our intrepid producer, Michael James. Without MJ whacking away every week, there would be no Howie Games. Thanks to you guys for listening. Hope you're enjoying the Howie Games. Please continue to spread the love. Rate us on iTunes. Subscribe to us. Send us out there on Twitter and Facebook so more people know about us. The more that listen, the better off we'll be. As always, we'll be back with another episode of the Howie Games next Thursday. Until then, peace and love. And we can do it. 
If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. Listener.